0: Lights, camera, action. Hey, everyone. Hey, guys.
1: Welcome back to our podcast. Today, we are on episode eight, but if you haven't checked out episode seven from last week, I would encourage you to do that because we had our first ever guest, um, John's brother, Josh, and it was a lot of fun just talking with him about the movie Gladiator. And yeah, so go check that out if you haven't yet.
0: Yeah, we even did some movie trivia. It was a really great episode. Go give it a listen.
1: Um, So today we are going to be talking about Interstellar, which is one of my all-time favorite movies. Um, If you have not seen that movie yet, I would pause this and go and watch that first because we will be... Having some major spoilers in this episode, that will probably ruin it for you. And I know that if I could go back and watch that movie for the first time again without knowing anything that happens at the end, I totally would. So make sure you do that. Um, So I will go ahead and just start us off with some introductory details. So Interstellar was released on October 26th in 2014. It was directed by Christopher Nolan. It stars Matthew McConaughey, Anne Hathaway, Jessica Chastain, Michael Caine, and Matt Damon. It was distributed by Paramount Pictures and Warner Bros. The runtime is 2 hours and 45 minutes. It was rated PG-13, and its budget was $165 million, but its box office total was $701.7 million. Very nice. So it did very well.
0: Yes. Almost a billion.
1: Yes. So um, I didn't find a ton of facts on this movie, but the ones that I did find I thought were pretty cool. So the first one is that, so the robot, or what would you call it? What would you call TARS? Just a robot or a computer? Yeah, or? he's a robot. Okay.
0: TARS and Case, both.
1: Yes. So TARS and Case were both actually just giant puppets. They were not CGI or anything. So TARS was actually um, controlled by Bill Irwin, who was the voice of TARS, too. Um, Somebody else did the, like, more crazy stunts and stuff, but Bill did most of the controlling. Mm -hmm. Another thing, I know that John has a little bit more on this than I did, but the spacesuits that the actors wore had like they were functioning so they had a functioning oxygen unit so that the actors could breathe more comfortably during long shooting hours and then they also had like those cooling tubes and real space suits um just to kind of so it was they wouldn't get overheated and that kind of thing and john mentioned something else too what else did they have
0: um so on the planet where they visit uh dr man which is matt damon's character you see them use these little uh wrist propulsion devices i guess you call them like they kind of blow steam out of their wrist to as they're jumping to prevent them from like taking fall damage essentially um that was real they they had these little wrist gauntlets that they could press a button that was on their glove that would shoot out all that steam and everything
1: yeah so lots of different functioning pieces which was pretty cool um another thing that i read was that christopher nolan actually Um, hired the Nobel Peace Prize for Physics winner, Dr. Kip Thorne, just to help him kind of stay true to science and get all of his facts straight throughout the movie.
0: So there's a little bit more to it than that. Um, Kip Thorne was actually a producer on the movie before Chris Nolan was ever brought on.
1: Oh, I must have read something wrong then.
0: (laughs) Well, he once Chris got brought on, he did hire him as a consultant through the movie and like they continued meeting. Um, but the original idea for the movie actually came from Kip Thorne. And I'll talk a bit more about that later. So you're not wrong, but there's also a little bit like more detail to it. Gotcha. Yeah.
1: So, um, another thing that both of us kind of learned as we were researching for this movie is that Anne Hathaway Um, Her suit actually didn't get zipped properly when um, they were on the ice planet. And this was filmed in Iceland and they were in these ice cold waters in Iceland. And because her suit wasn't zipped properly, it let cold water in. And she I read two different things. One said that she almost got hypothermia and one said she actually did get hypothermia. I don't know if she did or not. But it sounded like Christopher Nolan was like, okay, let's just finish this scene really quick and then you you can get medical attention and that kind of thing. So he was pretty hardcore, but she said that it all ended up working out. But
0: yeah, the reports I read said that she almost got hypothermia, but, you know, you don't know how much of that stuff is actually true and whatnot.
1: Right. So another thing that was pretty cool is that Steven Spielberg actually was almost going to be the director for this movie. but um, DreamWorks and Paramount split. And so the story belonged to Paramount. So Spielberg couldn't work on the film anymore. But one thing that I found that was really cool is like, just like, um, things that would have happened if Spielberg would have been the director. So like different changes to the story. So a few like smaller ones, is like Murph was actually going to be a boy. And another thing was that there were going to be these like robots or like probes that were sent to space instead of humans um and also that these like robot characters were more like humanoid like kind of um like they looked like humans but weren't and then another thing was that TARS was going to be sucked into space while um the ship was stuck between two black holes there were actually going to be two instead of one and also the only planet that the space crew were going was going to visit was the ice planet um but they would have learned that uh, like a chinese space mission was there way before they came and all the chinese um people were killed by like radiation of a star like a neutron star or something like that um and then a few other things there was a lot that they were gonna do instead one thing was that like a romantic relationship was going to be explored more between Cooper and Dr. Brand. And then Cooper was going to return to Earth in 2020... Sorry, 2230, the year. But he wa- it wasn't going to be like this new, you know, whatever thing. It was just going to be like a wasteland. And then um I think that was everything that I read that they were going to change.
0: Uh, that's interesting, but... I'm glad that it didn't work out with Spielberg, to be honest. No disrespect to him. He's a wonderful filmmaker, a giant in the film industry who formed a lot of uh, you know, childhood memories for people with E. T. and Jurassic Park, um, Jaws, you know, a a bunch of like huge hitters in terms of cinema, uh, Schindler's list. Um however, I think there there's no better version of this movie than what Chris Nolan did.
1: I completely agree.
0: Uh, this is one of my all-time favorite movies, hands down, without a question. And everything that they did, it, in my opinion, is just perfect in terms of servicing the story, being a sci-fi thriller drama. Like it, I don't even know. Like the, it's just such a good movie, and I'm really glad that it wasn't. Um, I I'm really glad that it wasn't something where filmmakers were injecting a lot of big Hollywood ideas, so to speak. That this is really just an epic that Chris Nolan and his brother Jonathan Nolan and Dr. Kip Thorne put together,
1: yeah, I agree. There is like a small part of me that is curious about what the film would have been if um Spielberg actually had directed it. but yeah, Christopher Nolan's version, I don't think there's a single thing I would change. It's just yeah. so good, yeah, um, okay. So I mentioned this briefly earlier, but some of the movie was shot in Iceland and then um, some of it was also shot in Canada, like the different planets and that kind of thing. Um, And then one thing that I thought was really interesting was that the interview clips that they use, um, like when it's like the older people talking about the dust storm. The very beginning of of the movie,
0: how the movie actually starts. Yes. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Those were actually from a real documentary that was made in 2012. It was called The Dust Bowl, and it was by Kevin Burns. So I It was on PBS, right?
0: I believe so. Yeah. It was a PBS documentary about the Dust Bowl that Chris Nolan saw, and he thought it was perfect because they were incorporating aspects of the Dust Bowl era into uh, Interstellar. And so he got permission from Ken Burns to put it in the movie. And uh, yeah, it was pretty cool.
1: Yeah. And it was perfect. It played perfectly into it. And I know also that um, in an interview that I read up on, they took a lot of inspiration from that documentary for the town that Cooper and his family live in. And just like, obviously, the dust storms and that kind of thing that a lot of that came from that documentary. Mm um, another thing is that there was actually new c g i software that was developed and created f- specifically for this movie, which John might have more information on that.
0: yeah, I have a lot of info on that, but i'm gonna save it for later
1: yeah, um, and then my last one is that so while they're on Miller's Planet, that's the one that like they it's that's the like, water planet the water planet, yeah. right, and that's yeah. the one that's like um if you they really hyped it up before they left like you know like if you spend one hour there that's seven years on earth so like be really quick you know
0: yeah make it count yeah that's that's actually what uh cooper says right before they get out of the ship he says one hour seven years make it count
1: yes so in the background of that those scenes you can hear a clock ticking the whole time which just obviously adds to the suspense and the like craziness of it but. They actually said that every tick that you hear represents 17 hours on Earth. So that was pretty cool. That's wild. Yeah.
0: Yeah, because it totals out to 23 years, right? By the time they actually get up to the endurance. Yep. Yeah, that's crazy.
1: Yeah, so that's all I have as far as fun facts go. Okay, So, John, take it away.
0: All right, let's jump into some production details. Now, I will say before we get started that this movie is, um, as far as research goes, the most information that I've ever encountered, which granted, this is only episode eight. But still, I mean, there was um, just on Wikipedia alone for the production page only at least a half hour's worth of reading. Uh, So. There's a lot of stuff in here. I'm not covering all of it. I tried to take out the highlights um, and what I thought was interesting. So if you're interested in hearing more about stuff, just Google Interstellar Production and there's all sorts of stuff that will pop up. But without further ado, um, let's jump right in. So I kind of hinted at this earlier, but the original idea for this movie actually came from Dr. Kip Thorne. Uh, He's a physicist, a a theoretical physicist, I believe. And Linda Obst, I think I'm saying that right. She's a film producer. Um, They worked together on a sci-fi drama called Contact back in 1997. Um, And after that, they kind of kept in contact and they came up with the idea for Interstellar. So they kind of pitched the idea around. That's when uh, um, they were both... Dr. Kip Thorne and Linda Obst were interested in hiring Spielberg to direct, um, but they didn't have a screenplay for it yet. It was just kind of like a short eight-page general overview of the story. So in 2007, they hired Jonathan Nolan to write the screenplay, who is the brother of Christopher Nolan. But then shortly after that time period, uh, DreamWorks and Paramount split, So very interesting. This is a side detail, but Disney actually acquired the distribution rights to DreamWorks for about five years, um, which is really funny because DreamWorks exists because of Disney employees who broke off from Disney. But anyways, um, because of the DreamWorks and Paramount split, Spielberg could no longer direct the movie because Paramount owned the film rights to Interstellar. So at this point in time, they knew they needed a director. Um, Jonathan Nolan kept working on the script he worked on it for about four years Um, and during that time period he kept uh, recommending his brother Chris Nolan to direct the movie Um, and at this point in time I mean he was a mega hit he had done Batman Begins and the Dark Knight which took the world by storm so Paramount hired him Um, Chris met with Paramount and then talked with Dr. Thorne in 2012 because he was very interested And he signed on to direct shortly after. Um, He was very excited to direct the movie, citing that he wanted to encourage the idea of human spaceflight. So you have to remember, back in um, August of 2011 is when NASA shut down the space shuttle program. So the funding completely stopped for that. And it was looking very bleak in terms of, like, a mission to Mars and anything beyond what humans had already achieved in terms of, like, going to the moon and whatnot. So. Chris really wanted to do this movie to encourage the idea of space flight and space exploration um, because this was a bleak time for that in our history. Um, So he signed on and then principal photography began on August 6, 2013. They started shooting in Alberta, Canada. They shot in multiple locations as Emily uh, touched on and I'm not going to cover those. Um, But production or principal photography later wrapped in December of 2013. And then we'll jump into production design. So in the movie, you have three spaceships. The, the main one being the Endurance. That's like the team's mothership. It's their huge one where they dock their smaller spaceships to. Um, that has 12 space capsules. Or not space capsules. just It has 12 capsules. And it's laid flat um, as it's flying through space. And that was intentional. Uh, Chris wanted to have... 12 capsules on there and it wanted he wanted it to be flat so that it would resemble a clock. Uh, one of the main running themes in the movie is time and uh, this just kind of uh, integrates that idea even further. Um, and also for the design of the endurance they took inspiration from the International Space Station. They wanted everything on the endurance to be intentional, meaning that there wasn't wasted space um, that everything there had a function so they kind of uh, looked into how the International Space Station was designed for that. And then, uh, as far as production design goes, you have TARS and CASE, which you talked about a, a little bit already, em. Um, But they are the two robots in the movie, and they're very odd. They're basically just big walking rectangles. <laughs> um, and this was an intentional design on Chris's part. So he wanted to avoid designing a robot that was anthropomorphic, which is just a fancy word for human-like, something that resembles a human. He wanted to completely avoid that. Um, He didn't really speak to why he wanted to avoid it, I imagine, just to keep it kind of grounded in reality and uh, avoid, you know, like Star Wars and and stuff like that. Um, So the design for them was actually based on a complex mathematical system. Um, So when you watch the movie... Tarzan in case in multiple instances, it, when you look at them, they're essentially like four rectangles that are kind of jointed together so that they can walk and move and whatnot. But then they can also open their arms, I guess you would say, into two more rectangles, which then open into more rectangles, um, that it keeps going and going until you essentially get like fingers and whatnot. But anyways, um, that was all based in reality, like a mathematical system of what that could look like. And, uh, you know, if I'm being honest, as weird as it is, I can totally see that being something that was designed by some, uh, some, something that would happen in real life. Because when you have things that are designed in science fiction, you kind of have an idea of what it should be. And then when it comes to reality, it's like completely out of left field. It looks totally strange. Uh, so. Anyways,
1: I also read because I was kind of reading about the robot making, too, and I can't remember who got the idea first, but somebody got the idea for TARS, like what they would look like and how they would, you know, like move and stuff from popsicle sticks.
0: Oh, really? Mm hmm. Yeah, interesting. So um, moving on to visual effects, um, which this ties directly into production design, but I'm kind of I want to section it out because there are some specifics in here. So, as far as VFX go, uh, when a movie is made, traditionally, you shoot the movie first and then do all the visual effects, like the CGI and everything, after the fact. Uh, Nolan did not want to do this. So, he wanted to have the uh, VFX pre-rendered and projected on the set so that the actors could interact and kind of be in their environment, as opposed to uh you know being in front of a green screen and having to act off their imagination and it's very interesting that chris used this technique because this was released in you said 2014 right yes okay so they would have been filming in 2013 and uh this is one of the first instances of doing something like that Now, today, we have a technology called the Volume, which was made famous by the Mandalorian, which is essentially a ginormous, uh, not quite a building, but a a room, I guess, where every wall is an LED panel, and you can put a digitally rendered environment in there, and it looks gorgeous. It's indistinguishable for uh, what's captured on camera. And uh it, it, it's really an amazing process, but that didn't come out until uh I think 2017, 2018,
1: Something like that. Somewhere yeah. in
0: that neighborhood. So Nolan was way ahead of his time on this one. Um, but it really uh the actor said it made a really big difference for them being able to actually see what they're acting with. Um so on that note for visual effects, the film had over 850 visual effects shots. Um which is astounding um, and very impressive. And I'm going to circle back to VFX shots in just a minute um, because I want to end on that note. So we'll, put a, we'll push a pause button there and, in terms of CGI VFX, and we'll move on to practical, practical visual effects. Um, so you have three spacecrafts in the movie. You have the Endurance, which is the mothership. Then you have the Ranger, which is like their spaceship that they fly to the planets on. And then you have the lander, which is the, the bigger, clunkier spacecraft that they also used to fly onto planets. Um, all three of those were created practically. They were made um, using miniature models that were 3D printed and sculpted and everything else. Um, and the, the film crew actually referred to them as Maxatures uh, because of how astoundingly huge they were. So there were two practical models made of the endurance, which again, that's the biggest of them. That one's the mothership. They made one of them at one fifteenth scale. Um, and that model spanned over 25 feet. And then they made another practical model of the endurance, which was a pyrotechnic model. This one was only a partial, so it was only part of the endurance. It wasn't the whole, whole thing, but that model was made at one fifth scale, um, so I, there wasn't a report on how big that actually came out to. I'm sure you could do the math, but it wouldn't be accurate because it's only a partial model. But if you think that the whole model at 1 15th scale was 25 feet, partial model at one fifth scale had to have been ginormous.
1: Yeah, that's crazy.
0: Yeah, um, but that was for the end of the movie where Matt Damon tries to dock on the endurance and he blows up half of it. Mm-hmm. They captured that in camera for real um, by blowing up the one fifth scale. Wow. Yeah. Um, and then the Ranger and the Lander, um, it didn't say what scale they were made at, but it, I have how big they were. So the Ranger uh, spanned 46 feet and the Lander spanned 49 feet, and they were big enough to mount an IMAX camera directly onto the ships. So I thought that was pretty wild. And for those of you who don't know, like your traditional uh, camera that like is in the home is handheld, traditional movie cameras over the shoulder. And an IMAX camera is actually pretty hefty. It weighs anywhere from 80 to 100 pounds, and that's all due to the size of the film inside the camera. So an IMAX camera uses the largest size film that any camera can use. So once you start filming, the weight adds up pretty quickly.
1: Can I say something really quick? Y- yeah, go for it. So I had read also that um, all of like the film from this movie... If they put it all together, and I can't remember how many tons it was, I want to say six tons is how much it weighed, and they had to use a forklift to carry all of that and transport it.
0: Wow, that's crazy. Yeah. Um, so then, last bit of info that I have on production details, this is circling back to the visual effects. So Dr. Kip Thorne, he's the theoretical physicist, he wrote equations that would enable the tracing of light rays as they traveled uh, through a wormhole or around a black hole. Thorne then gave these equations to engineers who then wrote new CGI rendering software that could plug these equations in and then create accurate simulations. So this is what you were talking about earlier. Mm -hmm. Um, This is astounding because um, some of these shots were so complex so humongous just in terms of the complexity with the equation and the image that it generated that it took up to 100 hours to render one single frame of a shot. Wow. Over 100 hours for one single frame, and it totaled over 800 terabytes of data. Hmm. So for those of you who don't know what a terabyte is, A terabyte is 1,000 gigabytes. A gigabyte is typically like if you go to a flash drive or if you go to Walmart, buy a flash drive and, you know, it's like maybe four gigabytes or whatever. And you store all your documents on that. This would be 800,000 gigabytes.
1: Yeah, that's insane.
0: Yeah, it absolutely mind boggling. Um, And then final note on this. And I think this is really incredible. Very amazing. So. This movie released in 2014. Dr. Kip wrote these equations to basically simulate what a black hole would look like because humans have never seen a black hole. Mm -hmm. Um, We we know about them in theory, but we've never been able to see them. So it's all, you know, theoretical in terms of what they look like. Uh, But Dr. Thorne used these equations to simulate what one would look like. In 2019, the Event Horizon Telescope captured the first ever image of a black hole. Dr. Thorne and Interstellar got it right. Using the mathematical equations and theoretical physics, they correctly predicted what a black hole would actually look like five years before humans ever captured a picture of one.
1: That's crazy. Yeah. It's, it's impressive.
0: At, oh, it's, it's crazy <laughs> impressive. Um, but it goes to show you that even though there are some crazy numbers out there there are some really like you hear stuff and you're like really how do they know that that there are people who dedicate their whole lives to studying this stuff and that even though it does sound outlandish at times and there is truth in the fact that they don't know everything that they do get it right sometimes mm-hmm. and this is a great indicator of that so if you've not seen a picture of it um go google event horizon telescope black hole And you'll see a very uh, grainy picture because it's light years, light years, light years away. Um, But you'll see a picture of a black hole that looks very similar to what we see in Interstellar. Mm -hmm. And that's all I have for uh, production details.
1: Very interesting stuff. Yeah. So, John, I'm still trying to decide what I would rate this movie. So I'll start with you. Okay. What would you rate this movie, scale of 1 to 100?
0: That's a tough one, but I think I would give this movie a 97.5.
1: I was thinking 98.
0: Were you? I was. Okay. Yeah, I was kind of on the fence of 98 um, just so that I could leave room for other movies. Right. But you know what? I'll do it. Let's just say I'll give it a 98 (laughs) too. Okay.
1: Okay. Yeah. It's just so good. And I mean, I almost want to give it a 100, but I'm like, I don't know. I don't know if any movie could earn a 100. I don't know. Maybe. Maybe.
0: I think I could give The Passion of the Christ a 100.
1: I don't know if I've seen that one. We
0: watched it together.
1: Okay. Well, off topic. Yeah. <laughs> so why would you give it a 98? What do you love about it?
0: Um, Everything. I mean, honestly, that that's... Bar none, the highest uh, score I've given up to this point on the podcast, which granted this is episode eight, so we haven't done a ton, but still a 98 is a a mega score in terms of a movie. And I love this movie. I know you said it earlier, at least I think you did. And I agree with you a thousand percent. If I could go back in time and watch this movie again for the first time ever, I would a hundred percent do that. This movie is phenomenal. There's nothing that I don't like about this movie. It's just it's just a great movie. Um I don't know what else to say. What uh so are you going to stick with the 98 then?
1: I think so, yeah.
0: Okay. What what are your initial thoughts?
1: Well, I mean I well, first I want to say I'm very I'm very proud to say that I introduced John to this movie cuz he introduced me to like every other movie we've done on this podcast, I think, besides Wally. Yeah. So I I take pride in the fact that I I got him on this movie and that is just so good. Yes. But anyways, all that to say, I think the biggest thing. I mean, I've, like I'm the same. I love everything about this movie. I don't think there's anything that I would change. But I just remember the first time watching this movie. For me, I just like. I mean, you know, there's this quote-unquote ghost, you know, and. Yeah. For me, I was like, okay, what in the world is going on? Like, obviously, there's significance because they wouldn't have put it in the movie if there's not. But like, what is going on? And then it's like your mind is like blown when you get to the end to find out that, you know, it's Cooper and that he's like in this fifth dimension and like or whatever five-dimensional i don't remember what the exact- so he
0: he was brought to a they called it a tesseract yeah but he was brought there by uh, five-dimensional beings which yeah. you later find out are the humans from the future right who figured out how to get off earth and save everybody and everything
1: yeah and it's still hard to wrap my mind around but it's just like I just, I really like that kind of movie that like really makes you think and you know, like it's just like, like I still like after watching it, I'm still figuring it out, you know, like obviously everything is explained very well, but there's just so much to it and I don't know. It's just so good.
0: Yeah. I think one of the things that I really like about the movie is that even though like everything you just said, I agree with that. It's like this crazy mind bender movie in one sense. In another sense, it's very simplistic. Yes. It's very like, linear. It's like, very linear. Yeah. It's very easy to follow. It's very, uh, I don't know, it resonates. Like you you start with this uh, small town farmer mm-hmm. and he's he's widowed. You find out quickly thereafter too. Mm-hmm. And he has two kids that he's just trying to look out for. Mm-hmm. And that's the premise of the movie, and that's the through line through the movie, is that he's just trying to protect his kids. Right. And I love that. It's an easy um, premise to get on board with. Mm -hmm. It doesn't take a lot of thought. It's like, okay, this guy is a good guy. I like this guy, and he loves his kids, and that's what he's all about. Um, it, It doesn't take long to say, okay, I'm behind him. Where are we going next? Right. And even despite, like, all the space travel and all the theoretical physics and everything that's, like, in play in this movie, because there's a lot of, like, hardcore physics in this movie, and this movie is praised by the scientific community as one of the most grounded, accurate depictions of uh, science uh, in a science fiction movie in terms of space travel. And, like, okay, so we can pause for a minute on what I was about to say and just, like, Like you have the theory of time dilation in here, which is real. That has been proven to be real, that um, with a more intense gravity, that time does elapse at a different pace. Mm -hmm. Um, So that at this point in time, I don't know if it was proven back when the movie was being made, but it is proven today, Um, which is crazy to think about. um, You know, you could be on one planet and it's one hour is seven minutes here but that's just how it works that's how god created it which is pretty wild um so you have this like huge massive concept that's accurately depicted through and through and then just like with the black hole they got the imaging correct um and just stuff like that like it is it holds up well even though it's this science fiction drama um it, it doesn't come under attack constantly and, and Even if there are things that it got wrong, which there are things that it got wrong. And, uh, you know, I would say some of the more snooty physicists and whatnot are are quick to point that out Mm -hmm. um, rather than praise them and applaud them for everything that they got right. um, Even though there are things that they got wrong, it doesn't feel like. Oh, you know what? This is like this is too far out there, right? You know, it never ever feels like that,
1: right? There's nothing that's like far fetched that could like never ever happen, yeah. necessarily.
0: Yeah, I mean, you kind of have the end where like you're dealing with a one instance of the past over and over again. Yes, like yeah. That okay? Maybe that's one step removed from mm. reality, or or maybe it's ten steps removed. I don't know what whatever you call it, but even still. Outside of that, everything else holds up really, really well. Right. And theoretical physicists have even talked about that depiction of uh, Cooper when he's stuck inside the chess rack and said, that is entirely possible. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I'm not saying that it's the truth or anything like that and yeah. that it will happen or can happen or anything like that, um, but that it is, at least in theory, possible. Um, right. So, anyways.
1: This is off topic. But another thing that I like really appreciate in the movie, because I I mean, I really struggled with, you know, like him leaving his daughter because they had such a crazy close connection. And, you know, like she was so upset. So I really appreciated that even though his daughter, when he sees her again, is like elderly and on her deathbed, basically like I appreciated that he did get to see her again.
0: Because I think that scene always makes me tear up. Like I usually shed a tear. He walks in and his daughter's now, you know, twice his age or more. And uh, but he did. He goes and he sees her and uh, he he kept his promise that he'd come back.
1: Right. I honestly think that it might have knocked my score down a couple points if he didn't get to see his daughter. I think that just it's very powerful. That scene and just like, you know, I agree. It brings it full circle, I think.
0: Yeah. I think if they would have excluded that or had her die or something. Yeah. That it, I don't think I would rank it quite as high.
1: Yeah, I agree.
0: So anyways, circling back to what I was saying a minute ago when I said pause. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, in spite of all the like those crazy uh, things that are in the movie, like the time dilation, the black hole and the fifth dimension time travel ish, like not quite time travel, but kind of mm-hmm. um, in spite of all those things. Like there's still this really, really strong anchor of a through line where Cooper's motivation is to save his kids as well as save everybody back on Earth and save the planet that they call home. Mm-hmm. Um, his goal is to to get back to see his children. And I already said it once, but I'll say it again. Once they get to was it Dr. Miller, um, her planet, the water planet. I, I think that was the well, name. Well,
1: it was called Miller's Planet.
0: Miller's yes. So yeah. that's Dr. Miller. Yeah. Her planet. Um, you know, once he once they get there, he says, one hour is seven years, make it count. Uh just, you know, showing that, hey, like, I've got a family to get back to. This is the goal. We gotta make this count so that we can get back there and see our families again before they're too old or they're dead or, or whatever. Mm-hmm. And that's why the very next scene is so devastating once they finally get back up to the endurance to find out that it's been 23 years mm-hmm. that they lost that much time. Yeah. Um, I, there's just, I think one of the things that I really love about this movie is just that even though there are these wild ideas, it, it's at the core really just a simple story. Right. Of a dad who loves his kids, who's trying to be true to himself because he was an astronaut before NASA basically uh, got canceled. You know, they like lost all their funding and everything. Mm-hmm. Um, and he had to be a farmer. So he's being true to himself and looking out for his kids. And it's just, it's a really great story.
1: Yeah. And one other thing, kind of circling back, I wanted to mention before was that, you know, later on in the movie, when Murph is like, the same age as Cooper, we find out, um, was when he left. Um, we find out that professor Bryant, the one who sent them on the mission was lying. Oh Yeah.
0: Michael Caine's character.
1: Yes. Was lying about the mission, you know, like being able to return to earth and you know, that kind of thing, like that was never part of it. And
0: which uh, I'm sorry, this is off topic. He is the grandfather of Anne Hathaway's character. Right. Because they're well, both.
1: Either the grandfather or the father. I don't know. Because they're
0: both Professor Brandt. Yes. Correct. Okay. That threw me for so, a loop. So
1: they, they refer to Anne Hathaway's character as Dr. Brandt and him as Professor Brandt. That's what it is. Because yeah.
0: it threw me for a second when you said that, but I forgot that they're related. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Anyways, so, continue.
1: So we find out that he was lying. It was never an intention for um, that team that left to return. Yep. And we find out that they had no idea, you know, and yep. that I mean he was really the only one that knew. It was you know like... Well,
0: him and then Matt Damon's character. Yes, yes, you're so right. So I right. would assume by extension that everybody on the Lazarus mission Yes, with Matt Damon's team. Matt Damon's team that Dr. they Man. all yeah, Doctor Man, whatever. They all knew that prior yes. to uh anything else. But right. uh yeah, they were the only ones who knew. Yeah. So that
1: like really threw a wrench in things you know like i still remember when i watched it like you know i i was like okay all hope is lost like he's never coming back he's never gonna see his daughter again you know and that kind of thing so um i that made me appreciate even more the ending you know that he gets to return he gets to see his daughter and you know that yeah for
0: sure well it's devastating once you hear that because um you know they basically hear like there was no plan to come back, and then Matt Damon's like, "I know what he's talking about," yeah, and mm-hmm. basically confirms it and says that the future is the colony. You know, that's yeah. that's what the plan always was. It was to get you guys out here, mm-hmm. and we were betting on the fact that you guys wouldn't leave for that reason alone, right? Which is why we didn't tell you. Mm-hmm. Um, which is like absolutely awful, right? First yeah. of all, um, but secondly, um, I mean, just heartbreaking for the audience but then makes it like you said that much more triumphant when they when they find a way right when they make it work because cooper is relentless he no i'm not giving up you know i we're gonna do this we're gonna make it happen Mm -hmm. and uh he was kind of forced to make it happen because his original plan was just to get back to the endurance and they were going home right and then dr mann kind of ruin that Mm -hmm. um which forced them to go into gargantua the black hole yeah um and everything played out the way that it did Mm -hmm. but it's just i mean everything about this movie is great i can't say enough good stuff i love it and i mean honestly i could be here talking for days there's as much production detail information as there was when i was researched there's that much more that i could talk about right is really phenomenal. One thing I do want to talk about is that this is the first movie that I've ever seen Matt Damon in that I despise the character that he's playing.
1: <laughs> yeah. He usually plays like this great guy, you know, like yeah. either like an amazing dad or just like an inspirational character of some kind. Right. And this character, he's just awful. Yeah.
0: But credit to Matt Damon. Yes. You know, lots of great credit to Matt job. Damon because even when like, he betrays the team. Well, I, I mean, really, it's only um, Cooper that he betrays. Yeah. Because it's just Dr. Mann and Cooper out on this mountain, essentially. Mm-hmm. And uh, Dr. Mann basically tries to kill him. He starts cracking uh, the helmet that mm-hmm. Cooper's wearing. And uh, the only thing I can think to myself when that's happening is like, dude, you are such a jerk. Mm-hmm. And also, like, dude, I cannot believe. How much of a weirdo you are, because he's <laughs> like, "Do you see your kids, Cooper?" Yeah, like just the way he's talking and stuff. Right. But I mean, just like, just so much credit to Matt Damon and mm-hmm. playing a really unlikable character really, really well.
1: Yeah. And I mean, at first, when we're first introduced to his character, you feel so much sympathy because like he's in his like, you know, hypersleep thing. He's probably been in there. I don't think it says exactly how long, but years, I'm sure. Oh,
0: yeah. It doesn't say how long, but when Dr. Man, Matt Damon, wakes up from his capsule.
1: He sees Cooper's face.
0: Yeah, he immediately starts crying Mm -hmm. uh, because he didn't think he'd ever see anybody again. But we also find out that he says, um, I didn't set a wake up date. Right. You know, he basically was just like, "Okay, well, this is it. I'm just going into hibernation indefinitely and just going to die, basically. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So that, I mean, automatically when you first see it, it's like, oh, my gosh, like, you know, you have so much sympathy for him and you like his character. Yeah. But then he (laughs) quickly derails.
0: Goes and ruins it all. Yeah. Yeah. No
1: yeah. Yeah um john i do have one trivia question for you okay cool so on miller's planet you know like yes. one hour or seven years on earth yes what do you think would be equivalent to one second on miller's planet so what like how much time would pass oh on earth
0: and if there was, was just one, one second, second that you on miller's, miller's planet? planet i don't know i could figure it out uh but not off the top of my head if one hour is seven years uh one second i mean because then you got seconds to minutes minutes to hours right i don't know one one second is probably what is it is it like 10 minutes no on earth how how, what is it
1: a day and a half or is it a half a day half a day
0: half a day yeah wow Yeah, Yeah, I guess that that makes sense. It would have to be a lot bigger if one hour is seven years. Yeah. So one second on Miller's Planet is half a day.
1: Yeah. I believe I did the math right on that. Wow. It's very possible I didn't.
0: (laughs) Uh, That's still wild. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Well, is there anything else you want to touch on?
1: I don't think so. I think this is really a movie that you just have to see. Like, you just, it's just so good.
0: Yeah, I agree. I think there's a lot of things that we could be talking about. I think we could be a lot more concise about, uh, everything, but I agree with Emily. Just go watch the movie because there's so much in this movie. We could be talking for days and Em and I talked before we started recording that we needed to be intentional in reeling it back. Cause we would be here well over an hour <laughs> if we were just talking about everything we want to talk about. Um, there's just too much. It's a great movie one of my all-time favorite movies. I would say easily top 5 probably. I would agree. All-time favorite movies. Um so go watch it and let us know what you think. Um
1: hopefully we didn't overhype it. <laughs> hopefully yeah. you don't watch it with these like yeah. crazy expectations and are let down, but I don't think you will be.
0: I would hope if if you listen this far that you already watched it. Yes. Yeah, yes, uh yeah. if you didn't <laughs> then you did this to yourself. <laughs> but um anyways Thank you guys for joining us. We really enjoy doing this. Uh, Next week is going to be episode nine and it's going to be our first ever musical. We're going to be covering La La Land. Uh, I really did not know how I would feel about that movie the first time I saw it because you also introduced me to that movie. I did. And I love that movie. It's really good. It's a really good movie. So if you haven't seen it already, go ahead and watch it. Prepare for next week's episode. But we're going to be talking about La La Land next week. Um, otherwise keep a lookout for posts on Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, hit that like button, leave us a comment, let us know what you think. We really appreciate you guys and we're excited to keep doing more. And with that, we'll see you next week. Bye guys. Bye.